the first year of sobriety was incredibly difficult. Not drinking was just something I had to do to actually uncover all the other shit that needed to be addressed. <laughs> the most important thing about this disease is that you never think you're not an alcoholic. You're just an alcoholic that doesn't drink. I'm Anthony. And I'm Tyson. We're recovering addicts. This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction to the sunlight of sobriety. So my sober date is May the 23rd. Yeah, two years ago. Wow. That, that, that's recently. my last drink. Yeah, two years. Congrats. Wow, that's, that's very recent. Yeah. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. you. The anniversary, right? And so, I mean, for you in terms of, you know, I know you from... I think it was 2016 when, when I met you. So two years ago was May of, of 2018. So what's funny is we both kind of, we, we hung out together in really the last like hurrah of our, of our, <laughs> our runs, right? So. Um, oh yeah, you were a huge part of my last hurrah. I think. <laughs> you were like, you, you were like the funniest person to have a last hurrah with. I was like, I'm going out strong. <laughs> Yeah, wow, what a last ride, you know, it was funny, like, we, we had a lot of laughs, and, you know, we had a lot of really hilarious times, and we would always, it's funny, because really, we would start having the most fun, that we had so much fun, that we basically would want to just keep doing more of that, like, oh my god, I want to have more fun, more fun, more fun, and, you know, eventually, there's kind of a cap on the so-called, like, drinks to fun uh, <laughs> the, ratio. the ratio yeah it, exactly eventually has diminishing returns there and so like we we usually every every time we hung out though we started for a very long and fun period and then we would just you know blow past the stop sign if you will right and just, <laughs> just oh further i just i i think pre-sober and somewhat first in my first year sober I think the first thing I realized was I was just I loved running through red lights in every <laughs> in, in every capacity of my life um I wouldn't see red flags and I used to drive through red lights whether that was men booze situations anything uh you know so I think that's a big part of my journey before getting sober did you, were you aware of that though, Sally? Like at the time, were you like, "Fuck yeah, I'm driving through the stop sign," or was it? Is this something you, a conclusion you came to kind of after? I think on a slight unconscious level, yes. Um, but I think a, a huge part of the work that I've done in my sobriety is not being about not drinking. Not not drinking was just something I had to do to actually uncover all the other shit that needed to be addressed. <laughs> because wow. I, I think drinking um, is a symptom of a much larger problem what I was what I realized is uh, the drink was a medication for the fear the anxiety the what am I doing with my life um it was it was like a beautiful like cloak of kind of uh you know comedic energy and confidence and walking into the room and feeling like you owned it um but like you said you feel like that for the first six drinks and then by the ninth drink you're the messy person you know that everybody's like oh god don't talk to her tonight you know so it always starts out beautifully and then I think in a meeting the first thing you do is say I'm Sally I'm an alcoholic because Right. I think the most important thing about this disease is that you never think you're not an alcoholic. You're just an alcoholic that doesn't drink, but you're right. an alcoholic. There's no way around that one <laughs> or yeah. you're an addict or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, 
it's it's an interesting discovery when you get sober and you think I'm going to stop drinking and then everything's going to be fine. Well, actually, no. The first year of sobriety was in incredibly difficult and shining up a mirror to yourself and you're suddenly you can see everything and you 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 have to examine that if you want to keep moving forward and 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 be happy and stay sober you've got to look at the things that led you to drink so heavily and get into those situations right so yeah it's been an interesting couple of years but staying right on that because you you sort of alluded to a bigger thing is the symptom of a bigger issue like i've said this before too drinking is not about drinking right? Like drinking is not about drinking. It's about a bigger issue, typically relative relative to self-worth, self-love, self-relationship. But what did you have sort of a way to to kind of describe that symptom of something bigger, what that something bigger is? Yeah, it's really funny because, you know, around getting sober, just before getting sober, um, a couple of years before I started therapy, and me and my therapist laugh now because none of it worked before I got sober. She said to me not just the other day, she said, you used to come in here and repeat the same stuff every week when you were drinking, every week. And I would I would give you this advice and then you go out and you go, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And then you come back and you've done it all again the next week. And she says, I, you know, you're kind of putting your money down the drain. <laughs> But post post sober, I actually had the room and the space to deal with those things that I was repeating week after week after week. And I think one thing that I've noticed, and I think I I, I know Tyson's incredibly creative uh, person, an ex- extrovert like me. I think us extroverts, we kind of walk around with a huge like. A kind of space or a bit of a hole and we're looking to fill it all the time and that can be filled with attention or excitement or quick gratification any of those things for me like alcohol fueled situations whether that's a party or an event or whatever it might be um, I think that that just made that gap feel very full for whatever time I was drinking I would feel very relaxed and very kind of at ease you know where whenever whenever I was sober or I was at work I always I've always struggled with anxiety my whole life I've had therapy for anxiety I'm not on any medication now but for best part of 12 years I was on you know sertraline to manage my, my anxiety and um it was kind of a vicious circle really and the stupid thing about it is drinking when you've got an anxiety disorder is 10 times worse because the hangover is horrendous and the fear that comes with the hangover so then you just want to drink again so that goes away <laughs> i had the same thing i would i would drink and the night i was doing it i'd have a blast i'd do a bunch of blow and i'd smoke and be up all night and then i'd wake up in the morning and i didn't have anxiety attacks but i would have this overarching fear that I don't know, like this weird pressure in my chest. Like I just ruined everything. My life is ruined. Everything is over. How would I fix it? Oh, I just had another drink. And then it would just be, then I'd be fine. I didn't solve anything. I just got shit faced again. Same thing. Like I build this incredible pressure and it never, or, or the reality of the fact going back to the therapist with the same story week after week. I think everybody listening to this show can relate to that. We've all done exactly that hamster wheel process. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I was on that hamster wheel and I knew I was on it and I didn't know how to get off. And I just think that until everybody realizes that they have a problem or they're an alcoholic in one way or another. And I think when you try to stop, and I know that um, 
Tyson, you've mentioned that you tried to stop many times. It's not until you try and stop that you actually realize the magnitude of the problem. Because I think we're, we live in a culture where social drinking is just so accepted. But I was thinking today when I knew I was coming to chat to you guys, you know, how was I different from other drinkers? And I would go out for a meal and I would, it would almost frustrate me if a bottle of wine was sat there and somebody wasn't drinking it quick enough. Or I used to get frustrated because I wanted four drinks by the time everybody had had one drink, but I didn't want them to notice that I was drinking four or five drinks. So I, w- I would select my drinking buddies. Well, Tyson, you were fantastic. You would drink for drink me, you know, but I would, I would I'd pick my drink, you know, you would keep the pace, but I would select my drinking buddies because I didn't want to be shamed. I hated somebody ever telling me what to do or saying like, let's ease it back, Sal, or haven't you had too many or whatever to the point where, and I was listening to, um, your first shows of the podcast and it's it's a very true statement towards the end I preferred to go out on my own and I had a little local bar little uh, a dive bar around the corner and I got I was like a local celebrity this loud English woman that would just come in and you know havoc havoc had my own glass and they bring it out as I walked in and it was just brilliant it felt you know I thought they were all my friends and it was you know just we, we were just it's a bunch of alcoholics it wasn't a bunch of friends it was a bunch of alcoholics that had found their way to a place where you could easily be, be an alcoholic with no judgment yeah. and they would have lock-ins we wouldn't leave there till 7 a.m in the morning it was like the perfect recipe for disaster and that's kind of when I started heading towards my bottom when I kind of found that place and I I could hide my drinking from my friends my family my colleagues nobody had any idea how much I was drinking at that point I want to hear about the the bottom is obviously vital to making uh, to having the epiphany I want to get to that, but let's describe sort of from a high level, just your progression with alcohol in a sense. Do you feel like obviously it was a lot of fun from my experience with you, obviously the stories you're telling, you've had a very interesting life. You've lived around in different countries and you've had a lot of fun, right? Like traveling you've in, in quite a few different experiences. And stuff. So it wasn't like you've been, you know, like you were some sad alcoholic or something, right? In a lot of ways. And so what I love to hear too, is just sort of the origins of it starts sort of sunny and fun and positive, right? And, and eventually it progresses towards this kind of bottom. But I mean, how did that sort of start with you with alcohol? Like, when did you start drinking? You know what's so interesting with drinking? I remember trying alcohol when I was like 12 or 13 and it was like a party and my parents had alcohol and and I just remember thinking, this stuff is brilliant. I wasn't meant to get my hands on it, obviously, but I got my hands on it. And I just remember at an early age just thinking, this makes me feel invincible. Isn't this brilliant? And I remember people laughing at me that night. And, you know, I write comedy on the side. I do. I love anything to do with comedy. And laughing has got to be my favorite thing in the entire world. So if I can make somebody laugh, I'm like a performing seal. So the add alcohol in there. And I realized that this was just a phenomenal way to have fun and get attention and I grew up I grew up in a relatively normal household on a farm in the middle of nowhere but you know my mum was really like two parents and my dad was very very disinterested Um, so I didn't really have that big male role model in my life so I think I realized quite early on going out drinking it was really good for getting male attention and I think that was a big part of my journey was my relationship with sex and alcohol and it was kind of um it all started off you know partying and the norm and going to college but I always took it 
further. You know, everybody was fine to go out for a few drinks, but I was always trying to score Coke or I, you know, everybody was like, let's go home. It's six o'clock in the morning. We've got class at eight. And I was like, now I'm staying out. I'll just go straight to class. I just thought I was super resilient. You know, I was like, yeah, I can power through this. And I and I think in your 20s, you can power through. And what might have been cool and fun in your 20s can be quite sad and lonely when you're still doing it in your late 30s on your own. Yeah, my, my journey with alcohol, it was no surprise I ended up where I ended up because I have never been able to enjoy a social situation without alcohol. Like if you invited me to a barbecue, I'm turning up before bottles of wine. I just associated it with every single social event in my life. There was alcohol. So it's really interesting, the English culture part of this, because we're pretty much born and a gin is handed to us because that's just, it's a drinking culture, right? You don't have a therapist in England. You go and tell the person that works behind the bar. I wonder, I think America was an incredible journey for me because it took me away from my friends and family it gave me um I got divorced within like I I had a I got married came here with my ex-husband it lasted a matter of months when all of my circle was away from me and there was nobody to keep me mildly under control my drinking just got crazy he couldn't deal with it I managed to then get rid of my husband and then I was like great I'm completely on my own in a new country where I can just do whatever I want and I think It was almost too much freedom because that's when I started to party harder and bigger than ever. So I almost isolated myself on purpose. So I could. And just to sort of locate us in time real quick, when you got to New York, what this was, what year? Six years ago, six, seven years ago. 2014, you get to New York, all of a sudden, you know, it's the fork in the road, new country, no husband, and the drinking is, is going robustly we'll say yeah it was just like the perfect storm the time difference so everybody that I loved and was close to was asleep when it was my evening and I felt an overarching loneliness and because of some of my drinking and my existing problems I'd I'd blown a marriage apart so I was living on my own didn't know anybody got myself into a studio apartment and every night you know I started smoking cigarettes again I was drinking like three bottles of wine sometimes some evenings going into work with a hangover it was just it was a way of like keeping the loneliness away I think that's a huge part of my drinking whenever I used to feel lonely or uncomfortable I wanted to drink loneliness for sure the big big factor for me I remember actually verbalizing that many times that loneliness was it even when I was still doing it and incapable of stopping for me the loneliness kicked it off or it drinking took me to loneliness. It was weird. It was almost like as much as I hated loneliness, all I did is seek it out through yeah. alcohol. It, it was it's a weird phenomenon. That's a pretty common thread I've heard from a lot of the guests we've had, where they're you're filling the void of loneliness or whatever the overarching bigger issue is. So the- well, I think ultimately the end of the night, I always felt lonelier than the beginning of the night, but there was somewhere in between that was a beautiful sweet spot where I'd be listening to, I'd love to put like David Bowie on and start painting and I'd be super creative and I'd be smoking a joint and drinking wine and there'd be this beautiful collection of hours and then it would go into despair and loneliness and depression by about midnight. So I never went to bed happy. I never felt 
like loneliness it was just it was just a coping mechanism that void like filling a void and I think that's when I started getting closer and closer to my bottom those hours of pure enjoyment and feeling carefree that I used to get through drinking so easily they became less and less and the self-hatred and the loathing and the loneliness and the feeling out of my comfort zone that that got bigger and bigger the gap started swapping and it's you know towards the end I just remember feeling very out of my comfort levels when I was that intoxicated. I never heard it kind of described that way, but that's a, that's a really good way to look at it where the, the gaps flipped, where you that beautiful zone turns into the ugly zone. Where is the, and I don't want to jump ahead here, but where does the house fall down? Is Do you start going out more often by yourself? Or are you drinking at home more often and you just really hit the bottom that way? How does that work for you? Partly being a woman in my mid 30s, you know, so I'm 38 now, so I was 36. And I think, you know, everybody around me was either still married or having children. And I got, when I got married, dating apps didn't even exist, right? So I suddenly find myself single in my mid 30s, going on a lot of dates. And that's where I got very, very drunk. And I've actually written a lot of. In New York York City. I've actually, this has been the best stuff for writing comedy ever because I've just got this, I've got this whole three years of the most horrendous dates where I'm completely drunk as a skunk on all of them. Most men, I was like a one dater. I was great fun, but I was not the girl you wanted to go back out with because I was so drunk by the end of the day. So for an alcoholic, it's free alcohol for an entire evening. I worked out if I booked up like four dates that was just fantastic week really for an alcoholic you know free drink (laughs) so it was it it was frustrating because there was one part of me that's this very somebody that wants to build a home have a loving relationship be in something wonderful I I haven't got family here so I've always missed that family element and that's what you get when you get in a long-term relationship it feels like family but I was not doing the things that you need to do to um, even be open or embrace that into your life. So I had these few years where I was just going out on a lot of dates and trying to meet people and nothing was working. And I had to step back and kind of be like, I'm the common denominator, aren't I, in this situation? It was you the whole time. It was me the whole time. And I think it kind of... It kind of rubbed away on my uh, ego, on my confidence. And I think as the drinking got worse and worse, I think my confidence was getting lower and lower and I was getting more and more sensitive. And that's when like depression creeped in and my anxiety creeped in. It was just a situation, it it was the perfect storm for just kind of, overdoing it and uh, I started missing work more frequently through drinking the only reason I'm allowed to be in America is because of my work right they you know my visa so I was really playing with fire not showing up to work and stuff when I when I was really hung over and making you know hideous excuses on why so it was starting it was starting to get into the danger zone where where my lifestyle could have a real impact you know on it on everything so I had a pretty definitive rock bottom. And then I stayed, I intentionally, because I'm crazy, stayed down there for about seven years. It would, so, and I, I dragged and banged my head. I hit the rocks as hard as I could. And I, I just enjoyed the bounce, I guess. Um, and I did some real fucking damage to myself. But uh, for you, is it what was your rock bottom like? Did you have a moment or was it like a series of events? 
I definitely had a had a moment. So there was, you know, it got pretty dark for me. I got pretty depressed. And I, you know, this has happened a few times over the years that when I get very low, there's been like some self-harming in my background and that type of thing. I think when you're an addict, I've I've now been in AA for two years. So I, I have a women's group that I go to. And it's very interesting because, you know, every single week I hear other women's stories. And I realize that most addicts have other things that are going through their life, eating disorders, self-harming. A lot of them end up in abusive relationships. Relationship. I ticked all those boxes. I didn't realize this until I got into AA. I didn't realize my pattern had been one of not seeing myself, uh, not seeing my self-worth in a number of places in my life. And my bottom was, you know, that night I went out as completely normal thought it was going to just be a good old drinking night after work but I think something happened earlier that week like somebody I liked didn't want to go out with me or there was some rejection or something and I remember being in the local bar and somebody saying something to me that just made me feel very unattractive or I felt I don't know I and and then a friend walked in and had a load of coke on them and this was a work night and I just went harder than ever so I drank a hell of a lot and I did a huge amount of coke that night and I think you probably both know that the right kind of storm as we say and then the wrong mental balance that night and you add a load of cocaine on it it can end up in a pretty dangerous place oh yeah I ended up I ended up home knife I didn't go the full hog but I had a pretty good dig at myself cutting myself up and stuff and uh, I phoned a friend at four o'clock in the morning scared the life out of her incredibly selfish stuff you know I phoned up my boss and I the next day and I just said I, I need a week off and my my mum flew over it wasn't that I was trying to kill myself it was that I was trying to make the pain go away I wanted to feel something that was more painful than what I was experiencing inside I just hit a wall and I woke up and I knew that if I keep going like this something's going to kill me either the booze will kill me the drugs will kill me or I'll hurt myself or I'll go too far one night. Mum came out and she was out here for the first week and, and that was amazing and she was really supportive. And then when she left, all I thought about was alcohol and I couldn't bear to be in social situations and I couldn't, I just couldn't deal with this whole absence of alcohol. Uh, a friend of mine, I, I only had one person that I knew that was uh, sober and he'd been sober for eight years and his background was like heroin and, and some alcohol. And uh, what's so funny is this guy is somebody that I just used to hook up with on Tinder. So we didn't know each yeah. other that well. <laughs> so I phone him. I'm like, hi. And he's like, oh, hey, do you want me to come over? I was like, yeah. And... <laughs> there's this issue I need help with (laughs) in my defense we we worked on the sex addiction at a later level but that was still pretty strong at that point so the guy from you know the guy from tinder comes over and then I just tell him I said you're the only person I know that's sober he took me to my first AA meeting and he's my we've never touched each other since my best friend and we talk every single day. It's it's wow. hilarious. You know, um, he said, just come to a meeting with me. And then I literally never looked back. Wow. Well, that is the single best booty call story I have ever heard. I love it. That's so, really good. It's so funny. I just spoke to him before I got to speak to you guys. And he's like, are you going to tell him the story? And I'm going to say, you know, because he loves to say, uh, I saved your life. He's like, I had sex with you and then I saved your life. So, you know, we have this ongoing joke about it. Amazing. It really is amazing. I have to tell you, I I didn't see that coming. That's really <laughs> fucking cool. I, I mean, th- now I, what I like to note, I first of all, asking for help is amazing. That's, yeah. I think everyone's 
big first step, if you will, um, coming to terms with you need help, you ask for help. And then your friend who you, if I could say just a hookup, yeah, really stood, like stepped up, man. Kudos to, to him. That's fucking cool. Yeah. So I definitely really want to talk to you guys about the AA community because it's, it's, yeah. um, it's actually overwhelming. So I have a sponsor, sponsor for two years. I'm just about to start hopefully being a sponsor. When he took me to my first meeting, he never, ever, ever tried anything on with me ever again. And I didn't realize that when you go into AA, they ask you not to date for a year. And actually, if you're single, they ask you not to even have sex for the first year because they know as addicts, we want to look anywhere but at ourselves. So mm fall into an unhealthy relationship or whatever. I actually have just this incredible, amazing sponsor, yoga teacher, meditation teacher. She's just an absolute guru and she's phenomenal. And uh, she she wasn't as strict as other ones. We, we went for a coffee. So I'd been sober 30 days. And I said to her, will you be my sponsor? You seem really cool. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, yes, let's meet for a coffee. And she said, now, a lot of people are going to ask you not to engage in sex or date during the first year. And I went, I just looked at her and no, no, no. And she was like, what? I went, I was like, you've just taken alcohol away from me. You're not taking sex away from me. And she was like, okay, can you, can you do three months? And I was like, I'll try. I'll try, Karen. And it was just like this funny negotiation with this other human being. And when you go into sponsorship, you have to give your life over. She had my life. I did exactly what she told me to do. I still do in a lot of ways. And it's not a controlling relationship. The whole sponsee sponsorship relationship is you pick somebody who's got the life that you would love. And Karen looked like this strong, amazing, powerful, cool woman that just had her shit together. And I looked at her and I thought, I want what you've got. That's the classic mentor relationship, right? The the hero mentor relationship and in, in, in being like, wow, I want you to be my guide. If somebody asks you to do service you just do service so like I've gone and spoke in women's treatment centers like you know where women are in prison and stuff you know because I got asked and you just say yes so the, the whole premise of AA is that you show up no matter what it is and, and you help people because it keeps you sober helping others and it's almost like they say it's like a selfish thing but it you know it's not because you're helping other people but it selfishly keeps you sober it takes you outside yourself it's the one thing that I've surrounded myself with sober people that my worst fear in life is letting them down because I love them so much and they've put so much time and effort into me and they didn't need to we you take on service so I'm like the literature rep for the local women's group and so if I go out and drink who's going to buy all the literature for the meetings and you know you you end up giving yourself responsibilities within the program you have fellowship and you have a support network very important for me I had to do women's meetings I tried doing mixed meetings I just wanted to like chat up some dude that's like two rows down that's like I couldn't I couldn't do it so you know it Kate it was apparent to me that call it your home group you have to find a home group which works for you and you feel comfortable in and I've got this wonderful group in Hoboken and they're like my family and you say stuff in this room that nobody knows about you in the outside world. You can say anything in there. Some of the stuff I've heard is absolutely brilliant. And yeah, it's anonymous. And nothing that you say goes outside that room. There's a real trust in there. I can't even describe the energy that goes on in, in an AA meeting. It's phenomenal. The struggle, I think, for most addicts and for me specifically, so I can speak about this in the first person, I aligned, my, I aligned myself with people that fed my habit, fed my addiction, partied with me, hung out with me, drank 
with me. I always knew what to expect. So when you give that up and you make the choice and you hit your rock bottom, you look in the mirror and you're like, I, I'm, I have to make this change for me. And you take the steps into the sunshine towards sobriety. What happens is, and this is interesting because it comes up on every single episode that you build a new and better network of trusting, loving friends, family that you can lean into, that you can call, that you can rely on. And then you just seem to, your past fades away because you've replaced it with positive, strong relationships to fill that void in a loving, wonderful way. It's a very long way for me to say you build better, tighter, more real relationships of the void of alcohol and drugs. And it's magical. It really is fucking magical. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You had the void, right? Was you were always trying to fill the void. And then it when you were drinking, and I, I totally relate with that as well as an extrovert, as you mentioned. What resonated about this last piece is you're talking about this inner circle, this place, this room, even where you've heard things and, and nothing leaves there. And I and I wrote down inner circle. And then I thought to myself, I just instantly sort of envisioned that void has now been filled with that new community and, and network you just described to us and that that responsibility of sort of helping others and giving yourself responsibilities. I liked how you said that, that prevent you from letting down something bigger than yourself. Because then at that point, loving yourself or, or treating yourself well and doing the right thing is actually the best thing for everybody else. Absolutely. I don't know if, if you guys have seen the, the 12 steps, but one is admit that there's a power greater than ourselves. One thing that put me off going into AA was they're quite like people think that it's very religious, but actually I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. So it encourages you to put whatever form that you need to on that. So for me, I feel like my higher power in this it is the fellowship, it is the energy of those rooms. And that does very much do an amazing job of, of, of filling that void. I was on a celebration meeting yesterday. So the last uh, Wednesday of every month is a celebration meeting. Somebody had 34 years, somebody had 21 oh. years. And People go, well, what, why are they still going? And the reason why you still go is you show up for the newcomer. Because imagine you're a newcomer and you hear that somebody's been sober for 34 years. Nothing gives you more belief than sitting and hearing a woman celebrate 30 years sober. And that's why I will always continue to show up because I want the newcomer to know that she's got two years. That's amazing. I can't imagine having two years, but she's done it. And, and, I, and I think that's what you get. You get this sense that you have to realize that there's something bigger because alcoholics, we can be pretty selfish. We love the, we like everything to orbit around us. And I think when you get sober and you start giving yourself over to other things and you want to help other people get sober or stay sober, it actually yeah. gives you a purpose that you probably never had. And probably a purpose was what we needed in a way. Well, I know for me, and I, I couldn't agree more with you, Sally, but I, for, I know for me, if I, when I'm 25 years sober, I know that I am one bad second away from ripping a line, having a cigarette, or slamming vodka. Yeah. And I just know that. And I have to stay focused on sobriety. Um, I, have a, I have a really interesting quote, if you don't mind. I, I'm, a, sure. I'm a big geek about quotes. Um, I kind of base my day on finding a good quote. And this is the mm -hmm. one I found today. Strength isn't about how much you can handle before you break. It's about how much you can endure after you've been broken. And, mm. and that sums up my addiction perfectly. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a better man now for being broken because I can endure things the right way. I can be present. I can participate in the lives of my kids and my family. And 
I really love something you said on your episode, Tyson, which was the buzz of being sober, right? I feel that buzz every day. When you've, when you've spent the majority of your 20s and 30s waking up with a hangover, to wake up every day with no fuzz, no, you don't feel like you're going to vomit, you can say, do you know the most amazing thing? I can say yes to plans every day of the week. I used to purposely not make any commitments on the weekends because I didn't know how hungover I would be. So I used to turn down so many amazing opportunities. I always call it the gift of sobriety. So I have done things in these last two years that I could never have possibly achieved while drinking. You know, financially, friends, situations. It's just every day in some way, I find that there's a gift of sobriety. Thank you for listening to the Dismantled Life podcast. Subscribe to us anywhere you find your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please leave us an honest rating and review. Email me if you'd like to be a guest on the Dismantled Life podcast to share your story from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety at anthony at dismantled.life. Peace out. Stay sober. See you in the sunshine.